My name is Cassie Broadus. I am a youth studies student. I work at Beam Center. I'm a fourth generation Brooklyn girl. My name is Natisha Romaine. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I came to the Youth Studies Master's program because I wanted to start a mentoring program. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda Abacosi. I'm with the GEM Project. I'm a Youth Studies a graduate student as well. I'm coming from Bloomfield, New Jersey. I'm Olivia Gregorius. I'm from Long Island, New York. I came to the Youth Studies program um, through outdoor education where I was working out west. What's more nerve-wracking than having your professor for a graduate-level course broadcast part of the final over uh, their podcast? I'm not sure, but that's what I'm about to do. The um, surprising news is that it wasn't entirely my idea. Originally, what we were thinking is, wouldn't it be neat to have an episode where we talk to a group of practitioners where digital learning is not necessarily their focus in the day-to-day, but uh, they have a project to go into four different learning organizations that are addressing each in their own way the issue of STEM equity. And for those who aren't deeply engaged in that issue, what we're addressing is the inequity in who participates in science, technology, engineering, and math as both an academic field um, in higher ed and also in the context of work and careers. And what we know, we don't even have to look at data, but what we know from data is that uh, those fields are predominantly white and Asian and tend to be male. And so what we are working on as a field is how do we make sure that um, the barriers to accessing those futures are eliminated and all take away something different. Uh, about what's going on in these programs, what the best practices are, and then try to synthesize what's common across all four of them. That is a, a big part of what comes out in this episode, and that was a big part of the final for Youth Identity in the Digital Environment. It's the course that I teach at CUNY in the Youth Studies program, but what also transpires is an amazing opportunity for anyone listening to learn more about the program, whether you're thinking of attending one or you're thinking for your own university of getting one started. Uh, I can't recommend this episode highly enough. You also get to meet a group of extremely warm, extremely dedicated educators who also do a lot of giggling Uh, Amongst us, I think I cut five to ten minutes of joking around and laughing. Needless to say, it is a really special group. YS606, uh, thank you again to the crew, not just for your work this semester, but for the work you do every day. Enjoy this conversation with them. So you guys are the, um, the founding members of this class and have been a huge part of developing the course because we now will make adjustments based on what you guys went through this semester. So thank you for that. But I'm curious, I think the world that listens to this podcast anyway is going to be really curious about the Youth Studies program and really curious about what CUNY is up to and, and why is this not... Uh, a master's of teaching and instruction? Why is it not a master's of social work? Um, so 
if I can ask um, Cassie to start us off and just tell us a little bit about the Youth Studies program and um, and how it's different. And specifically, I'm curious to hear from you how this is the fit for you um, as opposed to some of the other degrees that I mentioned. Well, I think I'll start off by just talking about how personal the the experience has been. Um, what What got me really excited was the feeling of validating my past experiences. And I don't know much about teach, you know, traditional teaching master's programs, but I'm going to guess that you're probably learning more pedagogical tools and how to use them instead of looking into your experiences and connecting them to best practices. Um, and that's really where it became really personal for me because you know I was looking for some kind of validation because I've spent my life working with young people and uh, this program has really helped validate a lot of those experiences with an educational background which is what I was exactly looking for um, and the program I mean I'll also I'd be remiss to not include the range of students that are in our class um, and how close-knit our um, cohort was and the diversity of um, teach, uh, experiences that each student has brought to the program and the space that each instructor has given to each student to kind of share their experiences in, in our classwork. Um, and it's been, I mean, I'm sad that it's over uh, soon, but um, it's just, it's really been Life, life changing. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're somebody who comes to this degree after, like you said, a lifetime working with young people, um, and I think that's such an interesting point that that um, a lot of times you go to a degree program and rather than validating the prior experience and knowledge of the people coming in, um, it's really about like what am I, you know, what what is this institution going to deposit into your empty vessel? And uh, and instead, uh, for you studies, it's more about appreciating the experience in the room. Um, Letitia, your your strong nods. Has that been your experience? I would say yes, because I had previously applied to a social work program, went and visited social work schools, and I just never really pressed submit because I just didn't feel like I feel like I would be learning about things that I didn't necessarily that I wasn't all the way interested in, whereas mm. I just wanted to focus on adolescence. Like, that was my focus. And I remember having this conversation with my supervisor, and she's like, if you just want to focus on young people, then find a program that does that for you. Yeah. And don't force yourself into something just because of a piece of paper. Yeah. And so, for me, this program is like, it focuses on exactly the population that I want to work with, and it gives me the background and the knowledge and the foundation and kind of tells me, oh, you've been doing it right all along. It's, yeah. You know, this is it, but here's how you can do it better. You know, here's a little bit more, uh, you know, more frameworks that can help you to do even better work in these communities. Mm -hmm. So, Good for you for holding <clears throat> off. You know what I mean? Because so many people just right. go to graduate school because it's the next thing they got to right. do. Like, I need the, I need the paper. Right. I was going to say to get the paper. <laughs> it felt a little, a little disingenuous. Um, <laughs> right. That, that actually is right? my so, but, to... but that's how people are. Like, I need, I need the letters. Yes. Um, so um, 
But you make a point about the academics being right for the right. experience, both the experience you had and what, what it was that you were after, which right. is great. So, well, somebody, um, Amanda, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, what is the focus of the academics? Okay. Well, youth studies is a really emerging field. It ties in a lot about the histories of young people, as well as the developmental stages, as well as the psychology of young people. And I think for me, it's been really a transformative program because speaking through the lens of like a supervisor, I came in wanting to know how to answer the why for things. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's so common, like on the everyday, on, on hands, like field work, where we come to contact um, come to um, the forefront of like working with young people on the day-to-day and we just go about it um, to in a way where it's almost like it's automatic we don't really take a moment to pause and Mm. really think about like what is actually happening and I feel like through this program it answers the why like why are young people acting this way why are we in this particular stage and I know that we a lot of us here um, participated in um, one of our classroom with group work and understanding the different stages of leading a club or uh, leading a program and how young people behave in those particular stages was really, really interesting. And I remember going and taking back that knowledge and bringing it back to my team um, to really just focus on it and just let them know it's not them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is normal and it's something that they just should just kind of like accept and kind of like be more flexible when and they are receiving responses that may not necessarily always be as nice or kind. So mm-hmm. it was really, um, that's how I kind of like took it. It just helped me to figure out how to answer the why. I love this program. And I, I've already disclosed, I think, that I teach for the program and, and uh, CUNY, CUNY had something to do with uh, my being able to get this podcast going. So, so that's all on the table. But I do love this program. Olivia, you haven't talked about your experience yet. And one of the things that I think is really rich for the purpose of this conversation and um, about youth studies is that there is a focus in the academics around um, youth in urban environments, right? And you come out of environmental ed. And I don't think, even though I know as somebody who spent a lot of time in this space, um, I know there's a lot of environmental ed in urban environments. I don't think a lot of people listening connect those two things, right? They think of, of environmental ed as a thing that happens in the woods in New Hampshire, which great things happen in the woods in New Hampshire. Cassie, no, no. Um, so can you talk about uh, your decision to do the Youth Studies program and how those two things connect? So for some people, it's going to be an education about what's happening in environmental ed in urban environments, but also um, that for the person who's coming out of an environmental ed background um, that there is, uh, tell us, is there as much for that person at Youth Studies as somebody who's coming out of a programmatic environment that is historically out of urban environments? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I moved back to New York from living out west. So I graduated undergrad Um, and then moved to the woods in California and lived 40 minutes from the grocery store. And that was really new for me Mm -hmm. and difficult. Um, But I wanted to be working in education, and I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't want to be in a traditional 
education, classroom, four walls setting mm-hmm. that felt really difficult for me. And I'm a firm believer um, that experience and education are intertwined. So I think that having hands-on learning experiences is wonderful. I did not see myself going into outdoor education, but that kind of felt like a path that really made sense to me. And I don't come from a science background. I actually come from an art background. But being out with my students and having them be experiencing exactly what they're learning in their traditional classroom in real life is mind-blowing. And I think that ties directly to a lot of what like youth development work is a lot of what's happening in these after school programs is there's so much more room for these hands-on experienced project-based learning because we're we don't need to be driving everything through tests and assessments and academics and students not wanting to take real risks because they think that their academic standing is going to be ruined. Mm. Um, So it just, I loved the freedom as an educator to do that. Um, And then coming back to New York and entering this program, honestly, at first, I was like, I don't think this is going to work for me because I... I'm not, I've never lived in New York City. I've never been in a really urban environment. And everyone is so familiar with, with everything that's going on in this mm-hmm. city that I felt like I was kind of doing catch up. I'm like, what youth work is going on in New York? Yeah. Um, but I've found that through my own experience, and I think everyone can kind of agree to this, that every experience that's being brought into this class only makes it even more valuable. So if we're talking strictly about urban populations all the time, and then all of a sudden we take a step back and we're like, what about the youth beyond this city? Mm-hmm. What about youth in rural environments? Like, What's going on there? What are, what are the problems they're facing? Because ultimately, they're all young people, yeah. and they're dealing with similar issues, similar struggles within their families, within their communities, within their classrooms, um, and overcoming very similar challenges. Um, of course, everything looks very differently based on your home environment, but I believe that this program can provide so much to people that are coming from these different places and just because you may not have like worked in youth work for 10 years in New York City doesn't mean that you're not going to get things out of this Mm -hmm. program. I'm a very firm believer in that now. It's New Yorkers consider it the sixth borough. (laughs) It's everything outside of the five boroughs. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, New Yorkers can be New York-centric. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's good to hear you say that. So you guys are pretty much like just gave the commercial for CUNY's Youth Studies program. (laughs) Now let's have like a, a moment where we pretend like we're turning off the recording. And what are the things that five years from now, two years from now, you hope the, pro- the program is working on in its evolution um, to be exactly the right program for um, Amanda, somebody like you who's got staff who might get interested in, in a master's of youth study or the advanced certificate, right? Um, to be exactly the right program, uh, the one that you think is going to make the biggest difference for the field and hopefully, in my opinion, uh, become replicated 
at universities across the country. I guess bringing maybe weaving in some opportunities for us to present our and showcase our work in different ways outside yeah. of ePortfolio. What well, might be nice? I know that I don't know if you like our my colleague and I uh, uh-huh. we, we're going to do a conference. We're going up to a conference, um, and I think that's going to be really cool. Yeah. But I would like to be able to see like more like opportunities like that. Yeah. The um, other, the, there's two people in this room going to a conference. The other two looking at each other like, who's going to a conference? <laughs> we that's got a great. workshop cracking up. That's- <laughs> uh, that's terrific and super practical, and um, and the program could do something about right. So, um, getting more students, figuring out a funder who might be interested in getting some scholarships uh, to get you all out presenting at conferences mm-hmm. and things. Yes, opportunities like uh, talking to through media channels like this one, um, mm-hmm. and being able to to share your voice about what's going on in the in the space of youth programs. So those are all. That's a great. A great note. How about you guys? Anything? Um, one thing that, as we're sitting here, I'm thinking about is w- one common theme across the last couple of semesters was to v- was visit a program. Mm. So go to another program and kind of site visit. And this past semester, we went to one organization multiple times, met with different departments. And so my thought is, for those people who have the the schedule that will allow them to, let's say, potentially intern at an agency, I think that that would be super helpful, whether it's a six-week internship and then maybe you intern another six weeks somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I think that will be super helpful for people who may not have any experience working with young people and are like, oh, I want to do this master's program, this is great, but I don't necessarily have any experience. Yeah. Um, so I think that would be something to kind of think about. Although the program is designed for people who work yeah. during the day, there are people who you know, may not be directly involved in the field or may not be working. And mm. so I think it's very tailored to that work, you know, the work world. But at the same time, there are people who don't work. And so, you know, it's an option. It should be an option for mm-hmm. them to get that experience. That's and then I think cool. it'll open it up and you'll have people coming from all over who want to do it because they're like, oh, it's a full time program. I get experience. I'm able to take classes at night and it still works out. So, yeah. I love that idea. Uh, so, so it would be like an extension, maybe of. Um, well, so you can you can sort of be placed. Maybe mm-hmm. you receive credit for uh, becoming part time, or or maybe even a vista for those who know that that program. Mm, that's actually a really good idea. The but not communities quite, and service. You know? yeah. If our national. Um, Organization for Communities and Service yeah. lives on, which I hope it does. Weathers yeah. weathers the current right. policy storm. Right. Um, right, right, right. I love that idea. Yeah. So, so more sort of placements and opportunity to uh, do the work while you're studying the work. Yeah, I, and especially because it's kind of there. This theme has kind of been like a model program, and mm. so people are telling you it's a model program, but then you go in and you have your own perspectives. And yeah. I think it's it'll be a really great re- relationship to build with that organization. And say, okay, this is what I thought coming in. This is what I think now. Yeah, and this is how I feel like what I'm learning can help the agency. And I yeah. think even looking at let's say agencies that aren't doing so well and saying, okay, let's try to you know put them there. Maybe they'll be able to. It doesn't have to be for the entire semester though. Yeah. I think it could be. It would be cool to say, okay. I 
spend four weeks here with this agency. I spend another four weeks here. And then you can really have feedback about yeah. you're seeing different places throughout the semester while also you know going to class and learning about these things and applying what you're learning to those programs. So I don't yeah. know. I'm just... There's a so there's like there's I don't I don't know um, I don't know the whole analogy but but I'll give it a shot is is the problem with in part with the way we set up these placements in education is like if if you're going to school for engineering um, there's a big part of that curriculum that is going to be based on. Um, case studies that are real, so real problems that have occurred and sort of unfolded. And and we do a certain amount of that. But in our work, a lot of times it's really hard to get the case studies, especially if you're working in a nonprofit setting. Because um, you go in and the interview so much about like, oh, you've been held up as an exemplar. Um, let me ask you about all the things that are going wrong. That's a really hard conversation mm-hmm. to have. Um, so I feel like there are um, lots of other academic disciplines. Uh, engineering was just the first off the top of my head that have figured out how to do the sort of case study and then students working on real problems. But the thing I'm getting at is we need to make sure that students who come out of a Master's of U studies mm-hmm. know how to work on the relevant problems in the mm-hmm. space in which they work and not just have sort of studied um, studied the ideals and studied some sort of vague mm-hmm. sense of what really goes on, um, but knows what the real problems are so that so that minds like yours can all be sort of uh, wheels turning on the stuff that's going to matter to young people when you finish up the program. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Cassie is sort of quasi-raising her hand, but you don't. <laughs> you jump in. You go. I think, so sitting here thinking, it would be great if there were some deeper connections between the curriculum of all of the courses. Mm-hmm. I know for a lot of us, first, first, you know, the first year of our program, I know I said it was a lot of validation of our own experiences, but there was a lot of depositing. We learned a lot in our classes in history of adolescence and youth development, and it really felt like each week we were just like dipping our toe into the subject matter. Mm. And obviously, as each class and each semester continued, we were able to, you know, take away and make our own connections between what we were learning. But maybe if we can pull back and see now how much they all connect together through the curriculum, it would allow for deeper understanding of each of the subjects that we started off with, how they relate through all the other courses. Mm. Um, because it was, you know, everything was so rich and we're like, oh my God, we only have one week, you know, and it seems like, you know, three hours is so long to sit in class, but like, I wish there was more time, you know? So it's just like, if we were able to make more connections through the curriculum, through the coursework, we would be able to dig even deeper with, with, with all of the subject matter. Yeah. Part of what's wrong with really K-12 and higher ed, but higher ed in particular is like, we try to fit so much into a semester, like the, the units within which we are trying to pack stuff, when really it should kind of be like the first like that should be your first step, and then the learning is going to continue to happen after a semester ends. So I feel like all programs could be doing a better job of figuring out how, especially in a program like this that is a, a uh, 
one focused on professionals that are going to go and do the work. Um, how you continue the the community of learning and practice that started in a class that can sort of continue that theme beyond the end of the semester, not in that like you're going to continue to be graded all of this time, but as working professionals, you all want to continue the dialogue and 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 keep learning from the you know there there are classes that I'm sure. Um, you weren't as present for as maybe you would have liked. I certainly. And then two months after the semester ends, you're like, oh, I did a whole unit on that. Now I need to go, I, you know, like I want to go back and have that conversation. Uh, but the semester's over. So, like, you can do it in isolation or not. So I guess what I love about the suggestion is um, for forward-thinking programs to start thinking about um, – how we look at learning beyond a semester for a given topic area and how when you come into a program as a cohort, you have one thread of communication that goes, like you're saying, from, from one course to another and not doesn't get broken by like your course number. So like, oh, we're going to start that conversation is totally over. We're going to start this other subject, but rather one thing leads into another. I know that's what all your instructors want uh, it's a matter of like how do you how do you make the institution of higher ed fit with that so um, I think it's an awesome suggestion you look like you want to say something and it just makes me think about like this class in particular the virtual environments class slash digital environments um, because I find it like you do um, mark you are able to really blend in learning so well um, you be, are able to provide resources in multiple different mediums that really provides like a holistic view of like the topic in depth. But I think what really allows us to um, contribute to the topics outside of the the online class and, and speak about it outside of class or in other classes that we so often comment is because that we are able to really see our colleagues' perspectives, their own perspectives on things. And I'm always like saying like, oh, that's such an interesting way to view that. Like mm. that I never even would have thought about it in that way. And so that in itself is enlightening. Um, and so if we had more experiences where we're able to like see other viewpoints, not necessarily just all about, about the viewpoints of the authors that, uh, that we're reading or our professors, mm. but with one another, it will also allow us to speak about it more outside of the classroom. Mm. Also meaning that the classes should stay, like the cohorts should stay small. Yes. I, yes. I mean, the, the subject matter and the personal stories and everything with with a large with a large class i know there's probably temptation to you know try to get yeah. as many people in here as possible but being able to like trust your your classmates and have a really good relationship with your professors i feel is you know it's not it's not a it's not a public school experience this is a this is a high level private experience that we're getting yeah mm -hmm. and i would also say that um this kind of diverges a little bit, but we talked about all the different experiences within our own cohort. We also have an amazing close-knit cohort, which I do think is unique and something to point out. Mm. Um, and we also talk about, well, there's obviously new people coming into this program. Where are they from? What are they doing? There's, there's so many connections to different resources and also 
And we as practitioners are always talking about, well, practitioners need to talk more about this or、mm-hmm. we need to spread information around more. And what are the ways that we can do that like outside of structured conferences and things like that? So, how can we make whether it's events or something happen within program where we can talk? Cross cohorts.、Mm. Um, and because I think when you are with one group going through all these classes, it can be intense. It's, you, you hear a lot, you go through a lot,、um, which can be really positive. It could be difficult, it could be a lot of things,、um, especially when we're coming from totally different worlds within youth studies.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of thinking about the ways that we could make that happen. So, ways to more deliberately connect a cohort as it enters the program. Yeah. And then supports that help it sort of thrive through each of these experiences? What am I I'm missing? Yes. That part? And also, like, we haven't really been able to have the time to talk to people outside of our cohort that are in this program. Oh, I that see. That are just the、Got、next、it. cohort and、Got、then、it. the next cohort. So, for instance, this class is an elective that we are all part of, and you have to take two electives during your time. Got it. So, you may, during those electives, those, only those two classes, Merge with people outside of your cohort.、Got、All the、it. other classes, you are with your cohort. And that is the majority of the program, which is great, of course, but of, you know, you are like, could、yeah. gain, obviously, when you're gaining more ex- people's experiences, you're gaining more knowledge.、Yeah. So I think it's interesting to think of ways outside, maybe even those electives. It seems like there should just be a youth studies meetup. Yeah. An informal meeting. Yeah. yeah. I think that would be helpful whether or not it's like once or twice a semester, kind of like a mixer or some type of like college related. So that you're not like in your cohort, because、mm-hmm. that seems like an easy,、uh, easy problem to solve. I know I, we received an email from someone in another cohort about trying to create more networking and support between the cohorts.、Uh, she、uh, sent out a survey and A lot of people didn't respond. So I just know that from my own experience in work, like if it's not required, people aren't going to do it. So it sounds like, a, like I'd love to go, but、sure. I'm like, oh, it's Thursday night and I don't need to go to the city and there's a youth studies meetup or I could, you know, hang out with my mom、yeah. or my husband. It's going to be tough. But maybe it should be part of the grade, you know, one or twice. Once or twice a semester, we need to have an informal, be in an informal learning space. Obviously, that's something that we have learned about for the last two years. It can only be more enriching. And also, it also helps with professional development, too, with networking across the board. And I think, I think a good draw that could lead people into this space is maybe having like a very short. Um, either dinner talk or a chat and chew of like, a particular speaker. And it may not necessarily be, be a speaker, like a, a professor or someone who's abroad coming in. It could be one of us. It could be someone、mm-hmm. who wants to, in our cohorts, who wants to share best practice and who wants to deliver a particular topic. And pose we can, a problem? Or pose a problem like, to get us thinking. And we can have maybe, like, maybe two or three of those. Maybe five minutes each or so, and then we can have like a dinner or a potluck or something like that. That、yeah. could be helpful. I love that. Here's my idea based on your idea <laughs> is you do a one credit 
course that is you studies networking and you're required once a whatever it is twice a semester to do to go to the meetup in your second year or however you're spacing out your credits you're required to host a meetup once which just means like be the logistical coordinator um and then the output for the one credit is demonstrating how it is, uh, what you've learned about networking and um, and collaborating with other practitioners in the course of those, whatever it is, five meetups, six meetups. Uh, because I guarantee you, you'll get together with all the practitioners in this program and projects will come out of it, funding will come out of it, you guys will write proposals together. That's like, that's the stuff that comes out of these meetups. So. Um, um, I'm gonna, uh, yeah. You guys propose it. Well, I can't we support you. So, so this was our. I'm gonna hold this first part of our conversation. I'm gonna hold ransom uh, from CUNY. Uh, they'll they'll pay us for this uh, focus group. <laughs> no, but this has been a really, I think, important opportunity for them to get eval more eval data um, and formative data for how to continue to think about evolving the program. Because I do know one of the things I love about the program is that it's a group of people who are constantly thinking about how do we make this right um, for the people who are coming into it. Um, so now that we've talked about all that, we have this giant, um, this... Uh, wonderful final to talk about. Uh, you guys, so the final was to do a series of case studies. You guys chose early in the semester to do it together and you were going to pick a series of organizations that are doing things um, sort of adjacent in some way or intersecting with uh, digital environments. Um, but you wanted to specifically take a look at what was what was the issue that you were looking at? Um, trying to figure out ways where organizations would engage minority youth and seeing how they expose them to the STEM fields. Does that sound fair? Anything she left out? She got it. Um, <laughs> before I get into your, you had a series of practices that you found that were consistently um, in in the best cases being addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, before I get into those practices, that's what you went into it for. But, but good projects, as you guys know well, um, usually result in a question and not an answer. Mm -hmm. So um, after having done these case studies, What's the question you came out with? Like, what if you, if this project, if this was only the first chapter of a project, what's the next? So, one thing that we actually were talking about, I think it was last week when we were like finalizing things, was that yes, we're engaging minorities, we're engaging women, but what type of minorities and women are we engaging? Are, are, or are the organizations engaging? Are they engaging those hard to reach young people? And so, meaning hard to reach the ones that don't have the best grades, that didn't select this program, their parents didn't select the programs. Where, who's engaging those young people who are minorities, who are young girls? 
are they are they getting access and exposed to these programs? And so that was a question that, you know, kind of came up around disabilities. What about the young people who have disabilities and may not be able to physically participate in some of these activities? And so those are kind of the questions that came up at the end last week where we hmm. were like, whoa, <laughs> there's so much more work to be done because, yes, it's engaging, you know, black, brown, Latino um, young people. However, those young people probably have good grades. Their parents probably help them figure out what program. And so really looking at the outlying kind of young people who aren't as engaged. You say probably. Right. But to be fair, uh, since you guys have all taken research methods now, <laughs> you, you would uh, not, you, you would, that's your hypothesis, right? right? You, the ne your next step would be to do maybe uh, to do some research and right. figure out um, what are the factors that influence young people showing up in the programs that they do, where you see the greatest out output, and who's left out. Mm -hmm. So the dimensions of, air quotes, equity um, is a fascinating next project that maybe mm -hmm. you'll take into another class. The other thing that we found um, through looking um, at some statistics in an annual report from one of the organizations was a continued lack of uh, advanced placement courses and exams for people of color. Um, so obviously we we loved all of our visits and we loved, you know, there's lots of initiatives going on, but it seems like the direct way to assess how much interest is increasing for people of color, st young students of color, to move forward in these fields would mm. be taking those advanced placement courses and their entrance into those special uh, high schools. There is, I think, nine states in the country who have not received any um, black and brown boys applications for like for the was it the AP mm -hmm. the AP mm -hmm. exams or like computer science I have to go and back and check but it was really striking and um, also concerning too yeah. to see how like what techniques are not being used yeah. or what why why is there not a draw for it yeah. and um, and like one of the one of the um, one of the techniques that we highlighted had to do with like marketing and media. How is that engaging um, young people um, who are a minority, whether mm -hmm. it's black and brown boys or, or whether it's Latino or whether it's um, young people in rural environments or young people with disabilities or women and girls. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the things. So many, so many, we're going to do seven episodes because <laughs> we have so much to talk about but but um so i'm gonna hold on on some of the questions that i have um in an effort to try and keep us moving and get you through some of what the findings were in your case study so i don't i don't want to mention the organizations by name that you all visited um just to to keep um, the idea of doing a case study, keep the spirit of anonymity, um, even though most of the the experiences it sounds like were pretty glowing representations of what best practices should be um, in this case. But one question I have: so you guys um, cited a lot of national data. Um, and I'm curious for you guys to share 
What were some of the most surprising out of the data that you shared in the paper? What were some of the things that surprised you the most? Where you were like, you know, wow, the uh, the issue that you were after around equity and STEM were best illustrated or characterized for you? Um, so in our paper, we found um, from the Tinkert Labs and Google that as of 2017, women make up 18 percent of computer science degrees, um, which 30 years ago was 37%. And now, um, as of 2017, men make up roughly 50% of the computer science, um, people in computer science work. What shocked you the most about that? I think just because we're in 2017 and I, you know, there are just hopes that there are women that are in computer science and getting degrees. Um, and there are so many women that go to college, you would just kind of think, oh, yeah, okay. You know, 18%, mm. that's a very low number for probably, I don't know how many women go to college, but I'm pretty sure it's a large number. And so thinking only 18% of that, you know, they're getting computer science degrees, you would think that. Women are just, I mean, it's 2017, technology. Mm -hmm. um, you would just think that women are interested in getting those types of degrees. So thinking about, like, what's stopping them and what, yeah. you know, why don't we have more women getting, um, you know, degrees in STEM? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can answer part of that. Just I know for being at, you know, the C-STEP conference and being told that, you know, I'm not really, like, I shouldn't be in science. And for, so for people who don't know what C-STEP is, share that. Um, the C-STEP is a, a I forget what the actual acronym you stands for, but it. um, it's a science program for undergrad students who are interested in um, studying and researching different types of sciences. And I specifically was in social sciences, mm -hmm. and I was at a C-STEP conference and was told that I am not, you know, I should not be there. And so just having that happen to me in undergrad, because I'm in social sciences, uh -huh. that I shouldn't be at C-STEP, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, kind of understandable, but that was... A long time ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I would hope that times have changed. That yeah. was over ten years ago, yeah. and so thinking about if that was what it was, what it was like for me ten years ago. Why is it that now in 2017 we're still experiencing that? Was your perception this C step experience? Was your perception that you were being told not to be there because you were in social sciences yes. or because you're a woman? Uh, a combination of both. I was one of like five women that had a presentation at the conference. Okay. And so um, it was a combination of both me being a woman and being in social sciences and then being told that I shouldn't be there yeah. because of... Didn't feel like a welcoming experience. And then, I, you know, I was black in northern New York. You know, it's a lot of, yeah. a lot of different moving pieces there. Yeah. This is 10, 12, 15 years ago. Yeah. So... Um, so so it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting experience, but to think it's 2017 and we're still at this... Well, when... not only are we still at this, but we're actually doing worse. Right. Right. So, um, and there's there's a big uh, we could talk lots about, and maybe interesting fodder for a future episode is like talk to some cultural anthropologists who have studied the the culture of work as it relates to computer science, mm. because when computer science started to become a thing. Um, a lot of those roles were actually doorways for assistants and at the time what were perceived as secretaries and administrative roles. It was actually a doorway to to uh, come up for those those positions. And so uh, women were actually being accepted. Um, there, let me rephrase that. Um, 
socially, there was a different momentum behind women moving into CS than there is now post uh, Silicon Valley tech startup, which is a very different culture than where we started when programming was a company who had bought a giant IBM machine and needed somebody who could basically like read the manual and learn how to program. Um, and those were often administrative roles. So um, I'm sure I'll have somebody come on to the show to correct me where I'm I'm wrong. But I think I'm I'm on to at least like the first chapter of uh, where some of that decline comes from. So I just want to add something that um, I know we talked about on Blackboard, but I heard a story about women in engineering programs and mm -hmm. colleges, and it obviously, well, it doesn't obviously, but it speaks kind of to, a little to our digital natives, digital immigrant concepts, and you know, young women were facing discrimination by their male peers when they were, you know, maybe they were freshmen going into their, you know, first level um, engineering courses or computer science courses, and their male peers who had much more experience because of the time that they spent in high school or prior gaming, coding, doing all of those things, uh, were discriminating against their female colleagues because they had not that experience. Mm. And that was urging lots of women to say, I don't want to do this. Why am I going to enter into into you know a field where I'm not going to, I'm in a 100 level course and I'm being discriminated against because I don't know the same thing that my peers know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really interesting to me to think about what's happening, what could be happening, maybe things that we didn't see in some of these workshops that could stop people who don't have that natural experience from gaming or, you know, having an uncle come by and show them, you know, here's how you write HTML on a Saturday afternoon, mm -hmm. um, which could stop them from wanting to continue or learn more. Yeah. And I think that's why there's like this huge push to focus on young girls in STEM fields because it just makes me think about um, studies that have been shown that there's a decline um, for young girls, particularly around middle school, where they start to lose interest in STEM fields when prior to that they were very inquisitive and curious about the whole field and getting that whole project based learning type of thing um, done, but now we see a decline, and so that we see a lot of um, organizations focusing within that group. Mm. Mm -hmm. So which is actually, which is a good segue, let's talk about the practices. Um, you guys pulled out from the, um, from the experience, you had, you had sort of um, premeditated from a paper, and I'll let you cite it, uh, some of the practices that seem to be leading to, to more promising outcomes as it relates to equity. What were those five? It started off as five, but then it became eight. Oh, good. Okay. So. Great. <laughs> I remembered the first five, yes. apparently. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It grew. Um, it grew, because there were certain things that we felt like was so necessary um, after reading more um, research, but we got our, our data also from a multiple literature through our observations, U.S. Department of Education, um, the American Institute for Research, and then the the overall document from STEM 2026. Um, um, we had eight, we pulled eight, eight 
eight practices, which concluded rem remove fear of failure. So basically, um, programming that offers low stakes of failing from making mistakes. And then we had provides images of diversity in STEM fields and work, like how are organizations um, displaying um, diversity because representation does matter when we see that young people see themselves represented in these fields, they are more drawn. And the same thing with marketing tools. How are we engaging underrepresented represented youth in STEM programming through media? Mm -hmm. And then we are taught. We also found about inclusive learning spaces, diversifying when and where learning occurs. So for young people to realize that learning is not just happening in a traditional classroom setting, it could happen in the museum, it could happen in the park, it could happen in so many different ways, and it could be very flexible. And then we had embrace youth identities, digital natives, while enhancing their experiences with technology, um, allowing young people to have the freedom to explore in the digital environment so they can start to hone in on their own individual identities. And then we found about ways to engage multiple stakeholders in STEM programming so that we can find um, different investors to really engage um, young people, whether that be community-based organizations, museums, colleges, or universities who come in to uh, mentor, which helps to mitigate the um, implicit bias that some minority groups experience within the K-12 um, to 12 educational setting. And then we also talked, found about uh, the flexible learning environments, learning spaces that are flexible in structure, um, whether it be through equipment, materials, to really enhance STEM experiences and for young people to think create, more creatively about, um, about learning and being able to like be more resourceful with the materials that are, are there. Mm. And then lastly was STEM, lear STEM summer learning and that kind of like we wanted to see what programs were really involved in this arena because we always hear about the summer learning laws and and if you're an organization that focuses on STEM, um, you, you really help to also just kind of like ensure that that does not happen but also that young people are being exposed to those, those skills. When, when you can you describe the summer learning laws? Mm -hmm. Well, the summer learning law is I I can't quote the particular details, but in a sense, what it means is that during the summer months, young people pretty much forget what they learned. Yeah. I don't know exactly how much I forget the exact number, but they they forget a significant portion. So when they start back in the school in September or or late August, it's almost as if the teachers or the educators have to do a refresher for several weeks mm -hmm. in order for them to like really catch up. So there's always this lag mm -hmm. in learning. And yeah. so by having summer programming, it kind of like lessens that opportunity. Yeah. So and it's not necessarily a universal, but it's an average, mm -hmm. right? That there's there's a slide, a summer slide. A lot of people call yes. it. Um, so that was all eight. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I feel like we're going to need to recap because that was a lot of things. Yes. Um, here's here's how we'll do it. Which which to uh, for each of you, which do you think is the practice you were most connected with, either as um, in realizing 
this is a huge need and we need to be doing more of it, or it might be a practice um, that uh, you've seen work for your own programs or, or have some experience with. Um, I'm curious which of those eight you personally uh, connect with. I would definitely say uh, removing fear of failure and um, embracing youth identities. Um, and I say those two because removing fear of failure while kids are learning ties really deeply with their self-esteem. And in traditional learning environments, when they are when when kids are only assessed on their learning by test taking or their ability to reiterate facts that uh, a teacher has told them really takes a large chunk away from kids who cannot retain information that way um, and it also makes them less creative when they can't test boundaries or figure out different ways of how to figure things out. Um, and embracing youth identities, specifically speaking about digital natives, personally, with my organization, we have a lot of kids who have so much experience with all different kinds of things because of their after-school programs that they're in, or family members, or teaching themselves things online on YouTube, just going online and saying, oh, I taught myself how to do this. Um, so really, uh, what I'm proud that I know my organization does with our professional development is working with teachers to not feel put off if a kid knows more than they do um, and being able to say, hey, Johnny, that sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. um, let's take that and here's what I've got to give you and let's make something together. Um, and that, that those two are the ones that speak strong, strongest to me. Cool. When I went on my site visit, we talked a lot about um, how to provide images of diversity in STEM fields, and um, the program that I was going to... Can you describe what is meant by that? So images mm -hmm. can mean all kinds of things, so just, just so that people listening are... What exactly yeah, are we so talking I th about? I think among the organizations we went to, we saw this happen in different ways. So, for instance, I went to a program that happened to be more art-based and a lot of project learning. So um, digital learning was integrated throughout programming in already pre-existing art mm -hmm. projects and programming. So teaching artists were running these workshops and integrating digital learning into them and providing students with inspiration by showing them different artists from their communities or STEM educators from their communities mm -hmm. or who looked like them. Um, so providing like actual visual images of these people yeah. and their backgrounds. And then I also think that on the flip side of having educators, having teaching artists, having actual people within the programming, running the programming that looks like these students are from their communities who have a similar background and can relate to them on that level as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's actually come up a couple times already in this conversation is is the, um, I, I think constantly of um, Miriam Red Edelman, who's been a, a uh, inspiration for a lot of people, but I love... Um, she has a, a quote. She's the the uh, founder of Children's Defense Fund, and and you guys are nodding. You know who that is. Um, and uh, she says, uh, "You can't be what you can't see." And um, so when I was was reading this, and and certainly in uh, our practice, and I've seen organizations do it extremely well, and then I've seen other organizations, and and had, and also represented organizations that have done it. Um, 
not as well, but I think it's such a critical piece of how we set young people up to embrace an identity that, whether or not it becomes a professional identity, um, loving what you're learning and loving um, the idea of being a person who has a set of skills, regardless of whether you're going to get paid to use them, um, requires you to love the identity that it that it sort of introduced to you through. At least that's been my experience, and um, and so I think it's so critical. Um, that there are, and there are a number of ways that that you can do it. But um, one example that came up, I had a group of young people in in my my episode zero was was I was talking with a group of youth about um, what happens in a lot of STEM programs where we do we'll do visits to um, tech companies, and we were talking a little bit about the phenomenon that phenomenon of like. Stepping for the first time into a place like Google um, or Microsoft or Facebook or uh, any of the big Silicon Valley-based companies that are also have a, a base in New York, um, and walking into a place that has great snacks, but everybody <laughs> is young and white or Asian uh, and mostly male. And whether or not uh, the conversation I was having with them is like, it, are we doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. By walking through those doors in that way, or you know, if you're not, if we're not seeing ourselves in those places, mm-hmm. or um, should they be coming to uh, like, what are the sort of micro um, mechanics of our programming that could be more successful at getting to that principle that you're talking about? So even if it's bringing professionals to us instead first um, before we go into those environments. But generally, the consensus of this very small group was that um, they wanted to be introduced to those environments regardless of what they look like. And in a way, this group of young people were actually motivated by the idea that they didn't see themselves in those environments. So they they wanted to be... Now, these were young people who had some STEM background and experience mm-hmm. and and it was almost like the mission of of changing um how we frame this issue of equity in stem was was kind of on them and uh they saw sort of personal mission in that mm-hmm. uh but i don't think that that's the same for everyone and i i think it's um something we need to constantly be considering, especially uh, as we're doing more and want to be doing more uh, partnership with industry and and bringing young people, uh, especially if um, we're talking about a sort of workforce frame to our outcomes that we want for young people to see STEM as a place uh, for them in their work. Um, I think especially we need to be considerate of, um, you know, that that we see ourselves. And yeah. I think that obviously I cannot speak for young, all young people right mm-hmm. now, but I think a big part in taking like a youth development framework to this in these programs is a consistent, supportive environment and a consistent, supportive adult throughout your journey in this can play a huge role um, and I think can really impact any choices that you make in any field that you decide to go into if you have someone who's backing you through any journey. So I could definitely see, even if a student 
did not necessarily see images of themselves everywhere, but had a consistent general support throughout their whole journey that their like confidence, their self esteem, or might look different mm-hmm. than a student for sure who didn't. Yeah. So I think that's a huge component. Yeah. I think it's also important to just have those conversations. I think sometimes when race and um, gender come up in the workplace, it's always like a really, you know, touchy subject. It's a little taboo. People don't want to talk about it with children or young people. And so I think it's just about having that open conversation because they're going to notice. and They're going to be like, look at all these white people. Okay. And so just being able to kind of have that conversation and really, you know, because I think in, sometimes it's an adult thing. Like, yeah. we don't want to talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. And in these times, it's very hard to to not have it be front and center for them. My eight-year-old asked me what white, white supremacy was a week ago. Mm. And... Um, and that was out, you know, he had heard it on the radio or, or uh, heard it talked about in class. Um, so it's really hard as a young person to uh, stay away from these topics. And, and um, I don't think it's too controversial to say that uh, it, it might be um, one of the most positive outcomes of this this particular point in history uh, that this conversation is unavoidable. Um, and I mean that in, in this, certainly a benefit uh, to everyone, but, uh, but in th- this group, very concerned with the next generation, um, so critical. So Natisha could absolutely, um, your point well taken. Anybody else on, on the practices? Um, we want to pull out practices that you felt like either you have some experience with or in your in the case study the visit that you did was particularly prominent there's two that struck out one about the flexible learning environments so too often um, as practitioners um, I've I hear in passing like when we we're trying to conduct like stem programming it has to be this high-tech thing um, but it doesn't always has to be that way um, to be able to realize that it is indeed ways that you can teach concepts be flexible with it use uh, use everyday objects everyday tools or ingredients to create something great for young people is truly important because um, by breaking down um, the idea that these that things can be simple, it makes it more accessible for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it also makes it so that there's less restrictions for young people, particularly young people in um, underrepresented um, fields, communities. And then the other one that really struck, especially with their conversation with um, Olivia, was being able to engage uh, with multiple stakeholders, uh, whether it is like companies like Google or big tech companies, it could be universities and as well as mentors. Um, Youth development um, relies on multiple sources, whether it be the mentor or the the family, the school. There's so many people who come together to enrich the lives of young people and just like the different stakeholders, um, whether it's like the um, museums, college, it just 
intensifies everything for that young person and also makes them feel really great that this this um, community is there for them. Uh, what was any anything um, surprising about the the case studies, the visits that you all did um, that you feel like really jumped out at you as being not what you expected when you went to visit an organization focused, obviously your focus was how is this organization addressing equity in STEM? Um, anything that surprised you? It wasn't surprising, but it just reinforced um, some of the things that we learned. Um, and the organization I visited, uh, the person in charge was really felt really supported by you know the higher ups in her organization um, and felt like she, you know, if, if there was something that a program wanted to create that they just needed to figure out how to get it done and they'd be able to try to figure that out. Um, and, you know, that touches on removal of fa failure. You know, if you feel like you, you know, you have an instructor and they can go into a room full of kids and say, hey, guys, how are we, what do we, what do we want to do today? How are we, what, what's the plan? What's something that we want to create? And then take that back up to the other channels and then be able to actually move forward mm that's got to feel pretty powerful mm. um, all the way down from the instructor to the kids who are there. Um, so that, that wasn't surprising, but it was, it was great to see. Yeah. Um, for me, I went to an organization or a program, and it was very, um, I think it's, it, what they're doing is really great. Um, I think it's a really great way to engage young girls in STEM. Um, however, for some reason in my head, I was like, oh, they're going to be doing both of these activities together. They're going to do STEM and this art activity together at the same time. Mm. And it was very separate. It was, we're going to do STEM and then we're going to do art. And that was, and so for me in my head, I was like, oh, they're going to intertwine it and they're going to, mm. <laughs> somehow they're going to do it at the same time. Um, and so it was surprising. I mean, the young girls that I observed were super engaged. They were like super excited. They were front and center, like ran down, ready to go. Mm -hmm. um, but just in my head, I was like, oh, it's combined some way. <laughs> like, I don't know what I was thinking before I got there. And then when I was like, oh, it's just two separate activities. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was my only like takeaway where I was like, oh, okay. Because, you know, I just, for some reason in my head, I thought it was going to be together, mm. like, both instructions. Like somehow they were going to do the art and the STEM and it was going to be all wrapped in one little package. Right. So you were, you were looking for a program that was um, doing STEM integration right. as an answer to yeah. the equity issue. Right. Um, instead, it was like... STEM here. Uh, there was there was almost like using one thing as kind of the hook for the program, right. and then like oh, and then we're gonna do some STEM in the back. <laughs> yeah, um, got you, got you. And so I was a little. I mean, you know, I think it's great, but I just in my head when I was like, because I didn't really do research before I went. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna like just check this out. I'm gonna see what you know. I didn't like ask questions about what I was gonna be seeing. I just literally I went, and then afterwards I'm like searching all of these articles and I'm mm -hmm. reading through it, and I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, this is different. Um, well, not different, but it's just I, I expected something completely different. My yeah. expectation was different. So um, before we wrap, I, the uh, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. Um, these are unique times that we live in, and uh, so for those programs or 
um, or other graduate and undergraduate students who are uh, looking to work in this field, um, from from your perspective, what's the one piece from everything you've learned, both academically and uh, from your work experience? Um, what would you recommend to organizations who are working on this issue of STEM equity um, after having done these case studies and with the many years of experience that you're coming to the table with? I think it's listening to the kids that you're working with. Um, incorporating, you know, if, if your organization so chooses to incorporate social justice or, um, you know, talking about the current uh, place we are in the world, um, but allowing your kids to speak for themselves and to talk about their experiences um, because that will open up their own motivation to um, get excited about what, what they could learn and actually use what they're learning to do something proactive, whether it be social justice oriented or not. Um, in our Youth Action and Agency course, we learned so much about the ways that kids are already organizing together um, and the ways that adults can support that organization. And mm -hmm. that, that's one of the biggest things that I, I, I took away from, you know, even our, our case studies and, um, and, the, and the course the, thus far. Also, I think if your organization or the place that you work with young people has the support, the time, and more often the funding to allow more time and space for social-emotional learning and teachable moments that are coming up, because so often I feel as youth workers we are fighting this problem with funding. Um, and we're trying to meet markers, we're trying to, like, please other people to make sure that our programming like looks really good and that kids are getting the most out of it. So we can't take every teachable moment by like the hands and just be like, all right, let's break this down right now. Let's talk, talk about social justice issues. Let's talk about current events. But I think as we can see, like the root of so many problems in our world is this lack of empathy. Um, and I think our spaces that we hold with young people can be like the start and the core of of empathy development of social emotional learning of how to interact with their peers of how young adults and young people should be interacting with each other and as Cassie said listening to our young people and if we can spend more time listening to our young people I think we can like revolutionize education and programming there's so much to be done mm -hmm. Also, like in the subject of social justice, especially with organizations and programs who serve um, communities and young people who are of low income, I think it first starts off with dismantling the pa this power structure first so that young people can be empowered. And there's so much to be gained for 
um, young partic participants, even who have shared stories with um, discussing issues of um, injustice, of of poverty, of homelessness, and and who themselves are part of those communities. But if you educate and you share um, knowledge with young people and allow them to see the different structures of inequity and the different systemic issues of their community and the history behind that, they themselves will be equipped and see the, see themselves as more of an agent of change. Mm. And they will not they will also like what we are learning to interrogate the system and feel more power that they themselves are not just going with the system, but they have the power to actually change it. And and I think as practitioners, that is like the ultimate um, one of the ultimate goals is for young people to feel that they have the knowledge, they have the power and the, that they are, they are capable of creating change. Great. Yeah, please. Um, <clears throat> I would say, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, you know, go deep, really think, help young people and work with young people to think critically about what's going on in their lives and really start having conversations. I feel like conversations are where we get the best ideas, thinking about all the great ideas that we came up with today, thinking about just having conversations and asking why and having young people ask why and then try to get the answers. And so um, my recommendation or one of the things that I've been always I just I always ask my students why mm. <laughs> you know why are you doing that why do you think that's that's that way what mm. do you mean <laughs> and they're always like miss why do you keep asking why mm. <laughs> it's like because I want to know I want to know what you think mm -hmm. and so it's really for me it's all about those conversations because then they'll be like oh and they'll have their aha moment mm. and it's like we're having aha moments every day um, and we're in class and we're like oh my gosh and we're like making all these great you know we're having all these great thoughts and it's like I want to have these same conversations with our young people because I can only imagine what they're thinking mm -hmm. um, and so really about giving young people the platform to be able to go deep and think deeply and really have these critical conversations about what's going on in their lives and what they want I think that's a beautiful place to wrap our conversation thank you guys for spending the time oh I was gonna ask you guys what should you get on your final <laughs> A plus, A plus. <laughs> Plus plus. <laughs> Four pluses. One for each of us. At least <laughs> modest. No. <laughs> um, I thank you guys so much for um, the time in this interview and, and the work that you're doing. One of the many wonderful things about doing this work is that I think in times like this that are um, really difficult from the perspective, from any perspective. Uh, but certainly, um, as we think about the social issues that are at the heart of the work that we all do, um, I'm really heartened and hopeful um, from this work, mostly because there are things um, happening when I get uh, to connect with young people who, um, from everything you just said, which is completely correct, um, giving them agency and an authentic voice um, is so critical because there is so much brilliant and so much uh, that we have to look forward to about uh, the coming generation. Uh, but also because uh, there are 
young practitioners coming into fields like this that um, I think are just such a critical piece for um, tipping that momentum into the positive. And so when I have conversations like this with you guys, it makes me hopeful. It makes me, especially on a day like today that started with a bomb threat or actually an actual bomb um, here in New York. It, it makes me feel like uh, there there is some balance in that scale. So thank you guys for the work you're doing, for sticking with it, for um, not hitting submit on the several applications to other programs that oh, weren't yeah. <laughs> like, that weren't submit. the right work for <laughs> you for bringing perspectives um, outside of what people um, you know typically think of as this work. Um, you guys are inspiring, and I hope you feel that way. Thank you guys so much. No thank, you. thank you. Thank you. For more info about how you can sponsor No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy a guest in episode zero, and young man who I beat in a slam dunk contest in 2004. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthing.wordpress.com.